All right, and we're rolling. All right. How are you doing today, Laura? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for coming. Um, when you reached out to me, I was like, wow, that that sounds like a very impactful story. Um, and we'll obviously get into it, but could you kind of tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from? Um, do you live in the, do you live in Lansing? Are you originally from here? Okay. Yep. I live in Holt now. I, um, grew up a little bit up North, um, Tawasasco area in the summers. And then, um, actually graduated high school from Owasso, um, long before you were born. (laughs) And, uh, so, um, but we went up North the majority of the weekends and holidays. And so I just tell people I grew up up North, but mm. I, um, my parents divorced when we were very young. I was about six. My brother was about four or five. And so then it was back and forth to mom and dad's house or. That's always hard, right? It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't recommend it. Like I had to go through it, but um, it made me who I am. And I never meet a stranger now because I never mm. had that comfort to be shy. Yeah. So for me, it worked out. It worked out. My brother's very outgoing too. Um, but I noticed with my my kids um, up until the point where their father and I broke up that they're much less out there. Like they're right. just more comfortable close to home. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess that could be like a benefit for children to learn how to adapt to different situations. Yep. But at the same time, it's like, what does that do to them in that moment? Yeah. There's never that, that initial security moment. of, right. Oh, I'm home. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it, you know, it, it is what it is and it wasn't as touchy feely when I was growing up, you just did what you had to do to survive, you yeah. know? And, and well, times are different than back then too, oh, right? Like, yeah. I mean, as far as like what was accepted and what was what wasn't accepted, yeah. And like the way parents treated their children too was mm-hmm. completely different. Totally different. <laughs> <laughs> like when, so I lost my mom. I was seventeen, and and there are some conflicting stories on how we lost her. But we lost her at seventeen, and I was seventeen. My brother was fifteen, and so um, that was that was really hard. You know, and it wasn't at a time like now where I could take time off school. I didn't miss a day of school. I went to choir practice that night. Wow. Like I, but that's all I knew. Like I didn't know really how to just stop and cave, um, which became my superpower. Um, Do you think that put you in a position to uh, like kind of be the mother figure and have to stay strong for your younger brother? Um, well, at that time, I not only had my younger brother, but we had two sisters who were 12 and 14 years younger than us. Oh, my gosh. So, but we didn't live with our mom at the time, and we hadn't. So it was my senior year of high school. It was the first time in my entire life that I went to school in the same school for the whole year, I think, in my whole life. Like, we moved back and forth so much that it was this school here and that school there and this school here. And so it was the first time. But I can tell you, like, it was yesterday. Like, I can almost tell you what I was wearing when I came home from school. And I remember seeing my dad's truck in the driveway. And I had just gotten um, my first car. It was $125. What? It was $125. <laughs> what kind of car was it? It was a 76 Delta 88, and it wow. had a 
450 in it and it went like i love that car we could put 11 girls in it wow and we did tell my dad um (laughs) so but i remember getting off the bus i remember going to um the house and my brother always dawdled to get home because um he was 14 15 and I got to the house. My stepmom and my dad are standing in the kitchen. And they told me that my mom was gone. And I didn't believe them. I thought they were lying, that they were just being mean to me. Because um, I was very insecure, very didn't feel safe. And um, I left. I just turned around and walked away. And um, went to a friend's house and just kind of said it out loud for the first time. And, um, yeah, it it was real. But the next morning, I, I went to choir practice at night, and it was my senior year, so we were getting ready for cabaret. Mm. And we were doing um, Michael W. Smith's song, Friends, and um, I couldn't do it. So I, I got up, I left, I went to some friend's house. Um, I worked with a band. Um, and um, I went to the band's house, and I just kind of sat there numb for, I don't know, hours. And I thought about all the different ways that I wanted to die. Um, because my mom was like, she was my mom. We weren't that close, but like, she's still my mom. Yeah. And we ended up... I leaving there and I can tell you that there's a tree and it's still there to this day and I literally had full intentions of running my car into the tree and um because I didn't want to feel the pain that I felt and that was back before opioids and opioids and you could hide from everything chemically and but I didn't, obviously, and I went home and went to school the next morning, marched into the principal's office and said, um, my mom died yesterday. My brother won't be in school for a few days. And I turned on my heels and went to class. Wow. And he sent every counselor in the school to find me. <laughs> and um, I went through a little bit of peer counseling, and they told me to write my dad a letter. And my dad was an iron worker. And a big, strong guy, but dealt with his own alcohol addictions and um, not a touchy-feely person. So um, he loved us, always provided the best he could for us. Um, But emotionally for a girl, like that was just not there from him. Right. You know, and my stepmom, bless her heart, she's only... 12 years older than I am. So like the maternal figure from her was very difficult on her side, you know, because here now suddenly she's just barely a grown up and she's married with two, you know, young kids and then now has her own two kids. And the the saving grace was is that my brother and I could get shipped to my mom's house when things just got too hard. And that got taken away from her, too. Right. And I never really took that into consideration until recently when I was able to make amends with her. Wow. 
Um, but you know, I just, I wrote my dad a long letter and, and I got on this diatribe about this story because you said times are different. Well, I wrote my dad this really super long feelings, you know, how I felt and can I just go stay somewhere else for a couple of days and just figure out what's going on. And I remember walking in the house with that letter and my dad didn't even open it. He just ripped it up and threw it away and said, it doesn't matter how you feel, you have responsibility. And that single sentence had an impact on me that I never recognized until probably maybe a few months ago when I was able to talk to my stepmom and I realized that it wasn't just me that had to feel that way from my dad, but her too. And so um, it was very difficult growing up back then. You know, there weren't, oh, yeah, you can go to your friend's house or, yeah, they can come over here or, you know, not only was the economy different, you know, food was short and money was short and you can go out and play, but you have responsibilities at home. And so it just was a totally different time, you know, where my kids – you know, my oldest daughter's 25, and at 15, she found me overdosed. Wow. And had to drag me out of bed and do CPR. And so she doesn't talk to me anymore. I haven't talked to her in about five years, and I miss her, and I love her. And I'm just hoping and praying that someday she'll let me tell her that face-to-face that would be amazing that would be that that is what I'm working for that is the whole reason that I'm working for that that one moment that she can tell me everything that she really feels and I'm strong enough now to handle it and talk talk about it so that's a lot yeah that was just (laughs) high school (laughs) that is a lot um, what was that moment like when you reconciled with your stepmom? Cause obviously you guys had some years in between you guys. Oh yeah. Yep. Lots of, lots of, lots of chaos and, and disrespect. And, um, she was raised different. She's very introverted, very quiet. Clearly I'm not, that <laughs> was my dad or my brother. Like we were just loud people and we, never met strangers and you know but she wasn't that way and it was this year at thanksgiving um i packed my my youngest daughter's 14 well she's 15 now um and packed her up and we went up to my stepmom's house my dad passed away a couple years ago um which is a super cool story i'll tell you (laughs) um that sounded terrible. I was going to say, <laughs> your dad died. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a really bad segue, Lori. Um, no, he um, he passed away, and I got to be there because of my recovery. Oh, wow. So it was a super great story. Um, but my stepmom, at Thanksgiving time, it was also my birthday, and um, she gave me um, one of my dad's T-shirts, And that had been 
something that um, it's been a couple years and she just got to that point where she could release it to me. Um, and that was huge to me. And so we finally got a moment to just ourselves. My daughter and my sister went out to go get something from the store and I made her sit down and I apologized for being a horrible human being. Um, and for being ungrateful, you know, and she, for the first time opened up to me and told me her side. And I had never thought about that before. And so being able to make amends with her was probably in my top five greatest things that's happened since I got clean and sober. That's awesome. Yeah, it was great. Being a step parent's probably one of the hardest things, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah, you're kind of coming in as like this other person that has a whole different life, and then these kids see that and they're like, "Well, that person, like, they're not part of our family," and so it, it kind of like causes this divide, this like separation, mm-hmm. and there's never really a way to kind of bridge that gap. Well, <clears throat> nowadays it's different because. It's okay to talk about your feelings and be open and honest. Right. Back then, you know, we're talking the late seventies, <laughs> early eighties, and it's not it wasn't the same. You know, she came from a very strict Catholic upbringing and it wasn't a warm run in the house, hug your parents kind of thing. Right. So that's not what we had when we came home. And it was just, it was just different. Yeah. You know, it to us then at that point, it was what it was, you know, and you just did what you had to do. Right. Which is why I'm still alive, because I learned from that how to not let all of these things that have happened in my life destroy me. Yeah. And how to just, somebody just asked me yesterday, um, why did you just keep going why didn't you just quit that must have been horrible and it was it was horrible but I don't know how to quit well it doesn't seem like it's in your nature to quit I mean from even from the moment that you'd mentioned that when you knew you found out that your mom died you you went and you went and attended to your responsibilities the things that you were a part of you didn't quit I mean like some people would just like I don't know what they would do in that moment. I've, I've never lost a parent like that, but yeah, like a lot of people would want to quit in that moment and you didn't, you just left and went and did what you're supposed to do. I don't know if that's a healthy thing to do. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously important to mourn the, the people that you love and care about, but, um, but yeah. And obviously you're not a quitter. You're here. Yeah. Today. Yeah. I am. And I, I work really hard at that. Um, but I will be the first person that will cheer you on. I don't think that anybody really has it in them to fail um, because failure is not what it used to be mm. either. In what way? Well, you only fail when you truly stop trying. Yeah, I agree. Mistakes are not failure. They're learning tools. And in this generation, in this time, we don't treat it like that. We treat it like a failure, like you did something wrong, you're a bad person. Mm, yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of people have their perspective that, like, at, le- at least I do, um, c- because I've 
failed at a lot of <laughs> things in life, but I use it as a, as a moment to learn and to find a better way to do it. That's awesome. And with today's technology and the, the innovation that we have, like it's so easy to do that. Yeah, it is. As long as you don't have the failure mentality. Right. Yeah. Which is really, really steeped in people. I think it has a lot to do with the victim's mentality. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. I've never been a victim. Yeah. I've been hurt by a lot of things, but I refuse to be a victim of it. That's important. Yeah. Um, and I, it's just one of those things that today, like so many people want to be a victim. It, yes. I mean, it's, you get attention for it, you get recognized for it. And, uh, and unfortunately like the media blows that stuff up. Absolutely. And I, I've had a lot of people like kind of insinuate that like people who come on this podcast, share their stories, like they're like, like as if like they're trying to glow in their victimhood, but it's like, that's not what it's about. It's about you sharing your story to tell people like I'm, I'm able to overcome this. I'm able to rise above it. So um, let's kind of get into a little bit about what life was like when you, you said you were addicted to drugs. Um, you were homeless in Detroit and you ended up losing uh, custody of your, your daughter. I'm oh, assuming the 25 yeah. year old. And uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Sure. So um, got married in 96, had a daughter in 97 Worked in the church. My husband preached and... and Your husband was a pastor? No, he's a preacher. He he went to different churches and things like that. Or he would oh, okay. preach where, like, you know, instead of the pastor preaching. Um, we sang. We traveled for the, with the church and sang. We, you know, we did all kinds of stuff. Taught Sunday school, junior church. And um, in 2005, I had gastric bypass surgery. Um, and... That was the start of my downfall. Did it save my life? Absolutely. I wouldn't be here. I probably would have exploded by now. Um, but. What was the uh, reasoning behind that? Well, like, when you have gastric bypass surgery, um, you are 85% more likely to become a drug addict than anything else. Why is that? Because your propensity to handle the medication is not there anymore. You don't mm. digest things. You don't, you know, absorb things the same way. It's just different. You totally give your body a crash course on learning how to live all over again. Wow. And so do you, you still get a high from it? Like the drugs? Yeah. Yeah, you uh, do higher. Really stronger. Yeah. Cause your body doesn't break it down. Right. <clears throat> so, um, what happened so I had that surgery in 2006. I had to have another surgery. Um, I have probably, I think we measured like 55 inches of scar tissue from Whoa. three surgeries. Whoa. Yeah. So. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So, um, but each time I'd have a new surgery, it would become harder and harder to get off the drugs. And what was the time frame in between those surgeries? So the 2005 started it, 2006, I had the second one, 2007, I had my daughter, um, 10 years later after her sister, because my weight precluded me from getting pregnant again. And nobody told me that it would happen like that <laughs> <laughs> after the surgery. 
So, um, which is great because Grace has been my one of my saving moments, you know, her and her sister. And, um, but so 2007, I had her. 2009, I had another surgery. And that was the one that like really tipped the scales um, for me as far as my addiction. I worked as a medical assistant. So, I started writing my own scripts. Oh, wow. And I was taking about <clears throat> 30 pills at a time. What pills were the pill of choice? Norco. Okay. Norco, Ativan. I didn't, I wasn't an oxy girl that didn't do anything for me. Norcos were different for me because it was like speed. Like it was how I stayed awake. Mm, yeah. By the time, you know, when you're ingesting that much of it. And people just respond to medication differently. Right. So I was at like 30 pills a day. Wow. And had a for, newborn. For it to do anything or? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And the when it got the worst that time, um, I was literally taking 10 pills, trying to find sleep in the pain. And I would wake up an hour later and think, oh, my God, I'm hurting so bad. I must not have taken my medication. Oh, man. <laughs> and I would just take more. Oh. And so it, it, how I'm alive is nothing short of a miracle of God. Because so many times I took so much medication that I really should have been dead. Wow. And so we, we, it was difficult. It was hard. Um, on our marriage it was hard on my kids did you ever think that i shouldn't be doing this this is a problem i did um in 2006 um i remember it started interfering with me going to church and work and that was a big deal to me you know, that was our, that was the big red flag is why isn't Lori in church? And, um, the pastor came out and he's like, what is going on with you? Like, why are you acting like this? What's, and I told him I'm addicted to these pills. And, wow. he, and he said, go get them. And I did. And we dumped probably street value, $10,000 worth of pills that night. I had a shoebox. Wow. Pills, patches syrups I had it all wow and um which kind of is like counterintuitive that you would think an addict would have like nothing <laughs> but I, I <laughs> but could, you, you had a job I, right I did I was a medical assistant yeah but it was I could function like you wouldn't know except that I wasn't there yeah um so we dumped them and I didn't go through withdrawal I didn't get sick. Like, I truly believe that God was like, okay, I'm giving you this chance. Take it. The next year, I found myself in the same place. What was the feeling after that? Like, did things get better, like, within your marriage, your family? Yep, yeah. Yep, yep. Things got better. I went back to work. Everything was great. And then I had another surgery. And then we would start the circus ride all over again. Oh, man. And so after, um, let's see. 2010, I was in rehab. 2012, I was in rehab. 2013, I was in rehab. And 2015, I went to rehab in Brighton Hospital. Um, Do you think rehab really works? 
or does it work if you want it to work? I, I ask that because I, I have a friend who's who's been in rehab literally for the last probably eight months. That's a good rehab. Well, no, 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 no. He goes to rehab, gets out a month later, goes back because he can't stay clean. That's so. the problem with rehab. Yeah. The people there, the, 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 the way they have it set up is so beneficial while you're there. Right. The problem is, is when you come home. No accountability. Well, even if you have some accountability, you don't have the protection. And it's like, um, how can I explain it to you that you would like be able to physically f- understand? It's like, um, do you drink coffee? Absolutely. Which, speaking of it, oh, no, I did have coffee today. <laughs> okay. But imagine that you were addicted to coffee. I am. And... You go away to get over it, but you come home and your wife is a barista in your home or outside your backyard. Right. And you can smell it. Right. You can see it. You can almost taste it, but you're not allowed to have any. Well, that's what alcohol is like for alcoholics. Right. And addicts. So real good rehab is more than two weeks it's more than two months it's got to be at least six months do they make them affordable for people like absolutely not no no absolutely not um so when i went to brighton we had private insurance and it was about four thousand dollars a day oh my gosh Mm -hmm. who can afford that Really rich people. That's wild. Well, Brighton Hospital, too, is where Eminem went, mm. where Kid Rock went. Like, I was there with some guy that did Ford commercials. Like, they wow. come from out of state. It's kind of like Betty Ford, right? but smaller. Their program is great, but you can't afford it. Like, they have halfway housing there. You know, uh, they don't call it that anymore. <laughs> what do they call it politically correctly now? Recovery housing. Okay. In 2010, it was $1,700 a month. Wow. Who can do that? Because your insurance doesn't cover that. That's a good program if it was affordable. Because, see, the thing about addiction is, is that your body believes wholeheartedly, just like I need this water, I have to have heroin. As a matter of fact, I need heroin more than I need this water. Like, statistically measured, my body honestly believed that it was more important for me to do heroin than it was to take this drink of water. How is two weeks going to make me stop thinking that? Right. Yeah, it's a mindset change. It is. How do you reshape that? I mean, what what things in rehab do they do that helps change your mindset? Talk about it. Tell yourself honestly why you're hiding from whatever it is that you're hiding from. It's... um. 
the alcohol and drugs is goes back to um, almost I, I don't I've worked a lot. I'm a peer recovery coach. I do motivational speaking. I'm writing a book. Like I I'm open about my addiction story. That's probably the best thing to do when you have addiction problems, right? It is. Or any issue, really. Yeah, yeah. Is to talk about it. It is. It's but you have to talk. therapeutic in a sense. Honestly, with yourself about it first. Right. Not what you think David wants to hear. Right. But what David needs to hear. And until you're absolutely honest with yourself, your recovery is always going to have a chink in its armor. Then that's all it takes. So what did you discover when you went to rehab? I mean, what what were you feeling like you you were running from? <clears throat> oh man. <laughs> I mean, obviously you had dealt with the death of your mom at a very young age, which I could imagine is very traumatic. Especially with the way you responded to it, you just left, you didn't deal with it clearly. I don't know if you dealt with it afterwards, but still you probably I'm assuming Tuck that down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I have a great ability to compartmentalize, which is yeah. how I just keep going. Um, the, the, the deal breaker for me was losing my kids. That was my low rock bottom. And so how did I get to my rock bottom? I, um, at the third time that I went to Brighton Hospital, um, sorry, it, it's a little more, this is a little more touchy feely for me. You're good. You're um, okay. they told my husband to tell me I can't come home. They told me, he said, I can't come home. And no matter what the other one said, that that's not true. That's not what I said. That wedge was enough to unravel the little structure that we had left. So I went to Dearborn to a recovery housing that turned out to be co-ed. And I was scared to death. I was terrified. And this was just from the pills. I hadn't tried heroin yet. And so I was there for a couple months, um, but couldn't afford it anymore. So I moved to Garden City to a different recovery housing that was a little bit more inexpensive. And I was doing phenomenal. I was in the best weight shape I've ever been in. I was walking five miles a day. I was working. I had um, responsibilities. I was running the recovery house that I was in. Like, I was doing great. I had eight months clean and sober, and I felt on top of the world till I met a guy. And yes, legally we were still married, but I hadn't seen my husband in months. I barely got to see my daughter. And so being a big girl, I had never been hit on before. And I was literally in the best shape of my life. And Brian was the captain of the football team, good looking to me. And he pursued me, you know, he, I knew nothing about him except that his mom and my mom died very close at the same, to the same time. And we were born within 12 hours of each other. Whoa. So it must've been fate. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
what I didn't know is he had just gotten out of prison for 10 years for robbing a bank. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that he was on heroin. Mm. And so um, we didn't have a physical relationship at all. It was just, it was weird. He was like the best manipulator I've ever experienced in my life. Looking back on it now, like I had to give him props. Like he's talented. Um, I had a migraine one day and he said, here, try this. And I just wanted the pain to stop. And that was the first time that I tried heroin. No, I didn't shoot up. I snorted it. And it was nothing because I knew from my other addictions that when you crush stuff up and snort it, it hits harder and different. And so I thought that's all that happened. I thought it was a Vicodin or a Norco or some pain pill. Because who gives somebody heroin and not tell them? <laughs> right? That didn't even make sense. But who does? Did he know you were in recovery? Yep. He didn't care? Nope. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Wow. Wow. Three weeks. I was homeless, jobless, living in my truck. Wow. Three weeks. That's all it took. And you were obviously addicted at that point. Right from the rip. It like woke up a demon. What was that like? Because I'm sure it had to be like... I'm sure you had like some sort of feeling of knowing that you were being successful. Like you were successful in being clean and you were in great shape. It was awesome. I was so happy. Like I, I really, for the first time, like had found some pride in myself. Was there like a a sense of disappointment in yourself when when you hideous? I just automatically went right from happy, successful to garbage gutter glory again. Because I had self-esteem issues. Right. Like, I didn't believe in myself. Why would I? I had never done anything in my mind that was worthy of being proud of. Did I have a successful marriage? I did. Did I have beautiful children? I did. But for some reason in my brain, that was not me. That was something that happened in spite of me. So when I realized that I was addicted to heroin, it was too late. And I was devastated, but I couldn't walk away. I remember the first night I slept in my truck. It was December. It was freezing cold. I had pallets in the back of, I had a little S10 pickup with a cap, a topper on it. And I was in the back and I was buried in blankets. I had my coat on, hood up, zipped up, sweatshirts, boots on. Whoa. I was freezing to death. But I would just do some heroin and go to sleep. And then I would wake up and be freezing cold and I would have to sneak out the back of my truck because it's illegal to sleep in your vehicle. Sneak out of the back of the truck, get in the front, turn it on, pray that you have enough gas to get warm. Get warm, do a hit of heroin, get back in bed, and try to sleep some more. Wow. And that became my routine 
I would get up, had a backpack that I took to the gas station at the corner of Michigan and Cherry Hill and got dressed, took a, a bathroom bath and and went to work. Never missed work because wow. of it. Never in the beginning. Then what did that lead to? So after I, I was working at CVS and... Um, I started stealing for my habit, um, lottery tickets, um, any thing that I needed, toiletries and things like that. Um, and I was at the end of my rope. Like I couldn't, I knew I needed to get clean and sober again. And, um, there were different people in my life at that point, um, that were trying to help me. So I went to rehab and I just knew that when I got out of rehab, my paycheck would be waiting for me to pay for rehab or recovery housing. And I could just go back to my work. Well, what I didn't know is that Brian had gone to my job, taken my paycheck from them. What? And I had no money. And I owed the dope dealer $700 because Brian had run up my line of credit while I was in rehab. Now, my dope dealer killed seven people. What? Yeah, so it was like how, like a normal, rational person would have been like, oh, I'm not going back down there. I'm going <laughs> to go home now. We're going to live a nice life, and he's not going to find me. But that's not how addiction works. I went back. Um got back with Brian and um, started working at the auction block. The first day back to work at CVS, they knew everything. Loss prevention was there. And they're like, you have one chance. Tell us how you did it without us seeing it, and we won't press charges. Because I was at a felony level. Whoa. And so I, I walked them through every single piece of it. And they let me go because I had just gone to rehab and they knew that it uh, inherently I'm not a bad person. Right. I wasn't doing it to be malicious. I was trying to survive. Right. Um, does that make it right? Absolutely not. No, but it, it's almost like a, I mean, you're a creature of habit at that point. Like you're just doing what you need to do in, in order to survive. I mean, your, your main concern at that moment was just, getting high and everything else was just is just what it was right the thing though <clears throat> it wasn't just getting high um that's the thing about heroin <clears throat> nobody tells you this but if you're listening and you've never done heroin don't <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> everything's fentanyl now but it's the same yeah. it's the same um, the first time you do heroin is the best feeling you'll ever have in your entire life. It is walking into grandma's house, bacon's cooking, it's nice and warm, and she hugs you in that grandma hug that just gives your body the best feeling one time 
never, ever happens again. If I've been clean almost five years now, if I did heroin right now, you'd never get that same feeling back ever again. And so the whole time, it's Chase just it. you're chasing. Yep, you're chasing it. I had a two to $300 a day habit. Wow. I never felt high. My name is Lauren Harrington. I'm a real estate agent with Century 21, Lemac Realty. Whether you're looking to buy or sell your home, I can help. From the big cities to the small towns and anything in between, I can make your home buying dreams come true. Come join the Century 21 family. Contact me anytime at 989-534-6430 to begin the process. I look forward to hearing from you. That's so scary. Well, the scary part is, is I had my first hot pack, um, which is um, what they call it when it's laced with heroin or with uh, fentanyl. Um, or at least they did when I was on the street. Now they call it all kinds of stuff. But um, I was I overdosed at the corner of um, Jolly and Michigan Ave, I believe it was where I was. I don't know. I know it was... Was it Lansing? Joy Road. No, I was in oh. Detroit. Oh, okay. Joy Road. I was at the corner of Joy Road in Michigan Ave. And I overdosed at the red light. Wow. So you were doing this while driving around and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we would pull into McDonald's, do a line, and get back on the road and go. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's so wild. Yeah. It, it's... It, it's stupid. It's just stupid. The 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 whole thought of it is just stupid. But I didn't like deep in my heart. I knew that what I was doing was wrong. But the obsession—you just can't break it. Yeah, it was horrible. It has a like a grip on you. It just oh, keeps pulling you down. A death vice. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's really scary now is that fentanyl's in everything. Um, I have a friend um, whose daughter went to a birthday party 13 years old. And they thought that they would be slick and got a joint out of mom and dad's stash. Oof. I mean, weed. It had fentanyl in it? Fentanyl. Wow. Five days that's in a coma. She barely lived. Wow. What is, what's her state now? Is she? She's fine. She's fine. Wow. That is crazy. I didn't know it was in weed. It is. It, it is was something in, that if you buy it off the street, right? Yeah. 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 Um, but you never know. I mean, let, literally, unless you're getting it from a dispensary, you <clears throat> do not know what you get unless you grew it yourself. Um, it's just... It's insane. It's just insane. And fentanyl has taken over to the point that heroin's almost obsolete. It's like the number one form of death, I think, in the United States. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I've overdosed 11 times because of fentanyl. Wow. Wow. And that was, how long ago was that? My last overdose was September 6, uh, 2018. Wow. That's crazy. And then, so... How many, you said you had 11 overdoses. What were the time periods between those? Sometimes twice in a day. Whoa. 
It doesn't make sense. It's completely irrational. Um, but it, it it's real. I know the very first time that I overdosed, um, I had taken a friend's son's meds. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a horrible person. Um <clears throat> or I was. Right. And, it, and it's almost comical when you're sitting with somebody and they tell they can tell you a story like that and you're like, What? You did what? <laughs> yeah. You see me at work, like my <laughs> my boss. So we have some customers that are um very affluent. And they're very difficult to deal with <laughs> sometimes. And I'll never forget the first day my boss was like, oh, I heard you had to deal with so-and-so. Are you okay? <laughs> and he was being so sincere. And I was like, Tom, my drug dealer killed seven people. He don't bother me. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, it, and, and that's been the precedent, like, I can do my job because people don't bother me. Right. You know? Right. So. I like that. One thing I like about that, like you just sharing that quick story is that you are just completely open about it, even in your place of employment. And they're fully aware of it, which 100%. is, which is so cool. The, so. <clears throat> that they're supportive in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. So here's how I got here. So I, um, two years ago. All right, let me do some little math here. <laughs> I'm a heroin addict. I'm slow, okay? Um, I don't get to use that as an excuse anymore. Um, so in 2020, I was in a car accident, broke my femur, um, almost died twice. Oof. 45 days in the hospital. It was horrible. Didn't relapse. That was in January 2020. March 2020, got COVID. Um, almost died. Didn't relapse. July of 2020, I was doing physical therapy for my right leg, and I broke my left leg. What? In physical therapy <laughs> and tore the medial meniscus in my knee. Um, December of 2020, I cut my hand all the way to the bone, cut oh. three tendons, had to have surgery, didn't relapse. January of, no, July 2021, I broke my left ankle. Didn't relapse. September of 2021 totaled my van. I was oh, released from gosh. the hospital in an incapacitated state from steroids. And they just let me go at the front door of the hospital and said, good luck. And I got in my van. I don't remember anything at all. And drove four miles and got T-boned at St. Joe's and I'm okay. Wow. Um, nine more days in the hospital, broken ribs, broken clavicle, sternum, concussion, abrasions, glass in my ears. And it was horrible. Um, but Sounds I didn't horrible. Yeah. I didn't relapse, but the house I was staying at, we had moved from Owasso, my daughter and I, um, to Lansing to work in a recovery house in, in Lansing. And that did not turn out. Um, it never came to fruition, thank God, um, because it, it, God just wanted me here in Lansing because he had other plans. But um, while I was in the hospital, um, I was um, asked to move out of the uh, 
basement that we were staying in at the house of the people who were going to be running the the women's recovery house. And so I'm in the hospital. They're making my daughter pack up our stuff. She's 13. And so we're homeless. And here I am, almost four years sober and clean, homeless again. Like, this is not supposed to happen. Yeah. So we went and stayed at Haven House, which... I love Haven House. If you've not heard of Haven House, support Haven House. It's a family shelter in East Lansing that saved my life. I think I had a, somebody else on the podcast that was staying there. Really? Like, yeah, when they were on the podcast, they were staying, I'm pretty sure, at the Haven House. Best people. <clears throat> Best people. Terry and Pam are like my favorite people. I should have them on too. You should. They're amazing. Mm. Um super great people. Um, and so they helped me get into an apartment and, um, it was a sketchy apartment on the South side of Lansing. And so I didn't have keyed. I didn't have, what? yeah, no, it's, <laughs> but it was better than my truck. So like right. my, my upset about my circumstances is a little different than everybody else's, but. So the Haven house, they kind of link you up with the, the resources needed. Yes. For you to get out on your own? Yes. Yep. And they have a program called Partners in Progress that follow you for the whole next year. Wow. They help you budget. They how help you. It, how long has this been around? Haven House? Yeah. I don't know, but it's been around a good while. Because I was homeless in Lansing as a kid. Oh, and okay. And that's how we ended up in foster care. Oh, mm. I did the foster care route too. Did you? Bit. Yeah. You were in foster care? Yeah. When I, w- I was really, really little. Um, forgot to tell that part. Yeah. Well, oh, there's so kind of so many things. We don't have that much time in a day. Um, my mom had a nervous breakdown while she had custody of my brother and I, and my dad lived out of town and they couldn't find him because we were pre cell phone days. Right. And so it took them a while to find him to come get us. And they put us in foster care for a while. How long were you in foster care? Honestly, I don't know. Okay. I just remember that the people owned a McDonald's. They owned a McDonald's? Yes. Whoa. Which you would think would be great, except my brother and I were not allowed to eat in the house. Really? No. We had to eat on the porch. Really? Yeah. Wow. See, when you hear stories like that, like my whole experience in the foster care system is terrible too. And I actually just had my sister on the podcast recently and she, we were all split up into different homes. It's Joey's full sister. Uh, she's my half sister, but she was in a different home, was adopted by a great family. Um, and so like, she doesn't share that same experience with me, but then like, I, I hear so many stories of bad stories of people like things like that, where the kids weren't allowed to eat or whatever, like just so much abuse and neglect. And I don't know. It's one of those things like, I don't know. It's a messy, messy situation. It is. It's so messy. Because, like, the incentive to do it is so much greater than, like, because, I mean, there's so many kids in the system. There's so many kids that need a home. Um, and so they don't necessarily have the resources also available to, like, look into a lot of the abuse. But then they also kind of turn a blind eye to a lot of this stuff, which is what happened to me. Um, like, literally probably 30 or 40 people reported the abuse that was going on in my home, and they still turned a blind eye to it. Man, that's rough. 
and it's it's wild and and like um in my in my story like my adopted mom went to jail for abusing me well the agency didn't know about that and so later on when i was like 17 16 17 i called and reported it that she had gone to jail for abuse and she was still abusing and blah 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 well they came out to investigate and they they questioned her about that and they're like so did you go to jail for child abuse and she said yes how did you find out about that and because it was supposed to be expunged from her record and um they they're like well somebody reported it but like don't let it happen again because if it happens again we'll take your your license and then that was it she left. Don't let it happen again. Don't let it happen again. It's exact the exact oh. words of a social a Catholic social services when they came out to investigate it. Mm. Yeah. It's wild. And it's, it's like pathetic. It's pathetic. And that is pathetic and shame yeah. on them. Absolutely. So when I started this podcast, that's kind of what I wanted to I wanted to like crap all over <laughs> foster care. But you know, there is a lot of good things in the foster care system too. There are. And I think the it's kind of changing a little bit. But it's the the problem is that they don't have resources and it's a it's a real tight knit community where like even the social workers can't even talk like to the news publicly about anything. Right. Um, like I've I've tried having several people on the podcast and they're like, Yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do it. It's hard. Yeah. So yeah. But yeah, that's terrible that, that would that that somebody obviously who has money and you would think that they would care about kids, kids, yeah. especially because owning a McDonald's, um, right? Yeah, won't won't no. even allow. And we them didn't to even eat. get McDonald's. Like they would come home with McDonald's, and we had to eat peanut butter and jelly on the porch. Wow! Like there was no like. Well, at least we had a cheeseburger. You know, wow. it was no. That's terrible. That's so terrible. Yeah. So fortunately, um, we were only in for a very short time. Yeah. You know, but it was still. I think my worst experience, my biggest fear factor that ever happened in my childhood was um, my mom um, was clearly not mentally stable. Um, and I think that I, I don't know the whole reason behind it. I know I've seen her do drugs, um, but I don't know that that was really, I think there was a lot of mental components to it too. Um, her dad abandoned them when she was two. Her mom was super strict and mean and, you know, but but provided monetarily. Um, but when, I, I don't know how old I was, like six or seven years old, my, da- my mom got remarried and they had their reception at a bar. Oh. And my brother and I were there and they, you know, the big, it was a big party and, you know, everything was all right and great. Except, you know, we're the only two kids there at a bar at 11 o'clock at night. But that's kind of how we grew up. Like, we, my dad was a bartender when we were really young. And my mom was always at the bar when we were, you know. So we kind of grew up in that atmosphere. So it wasn't so scary. But right. when we woke up, when the bar was closing, and they found us on the dance floor sleeping, and my mom had left for her honeymoon. What? Yeah. That was scary. Um, so they, they called one of my dad's friends. He came and got us. He called my stepmom. My dad, being the alcoholic, was at the bar and no cell phones. Mm. Here she is. We only had one car back then. Two infants or one infant and no way to get a hold of my dad. Well, hours later, my dad and his buddy showed up completely plastered. 
He came in, he set a gun on the table, and he said, I'm going to kill your mom. I'll be back when I'm done. Oh, my gosh. And he was drunk. And so I thought for sure I was losing my parents that night. Like, my mom was going to get killed. My dad was going to prison. What was going to happen to me? And for hours I sat there contemplating that. Wow. And he never found her, thank God. And wow. So, yeah. That's yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I think that was the biggest, the, the scariest thing that I look back on was the, that moment hearing that and thinking, oh, my God, my dad's going to go kill my mom. And yeah, I'm, and that had to be super traumatic, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. because you're sitting there just. In a stranger's in a, house. Yeah. For the most part, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. So you end up in this uh, this apartment that doesn't have any heat. And what was what was what happened from there? So when did you get this job at Wireworks? So, yeah, um, I started um, in the apartment in October. In December, we got accepted into HUD housing and, and are in a beautiful apartment in Holt now. And I was um, in January. I got a call from Sister Dorothy. Um, and if you want to do a fun podcast, you should have Sister Dorothy on. <laughs> She's the best. Um I met her through the recovery house that we were supposed to be working at. And then Pastor Deborah um, is one of my other mentors. And Sister Dorothy knows Tom, who owns Wireworks. And Tom came to her and was like, at the end of his rope, his manager was retired or was had to leave because of family situation. And he went to her and he said, Sister Dorothy, do you know anybody? I need somebody that's tough. <laughs> and smart and capable. Now, tough is the only word that I would have used at that point to describe me. Because <laughs> I didn't have, like, the best self-esteem. But she's like, I got the girl for you. And that was on the 14th of January last year. The wow. 15th. No, 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 no. Let's go back. Thirteenth of February last year, and the reason that that's important is because on the fourteenth I met Tom for a on a on the phone for an interview. the The next day I met him at Zeus's for a face to face. The next day was Friday I met his wife for a face to face interview, and on Monday I started. Wow! I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> All I knew was I was getting a job. I had no clue. None. Wow. I'm just going to go be an office manager. No. (laughs) (laughs) So was it, obviously you didn't know what you were going to be doing. You didn't have any any expectations. So was it harder than you thought it was? It was so hard. (laughs) It was like, you're like, oh, it's just an office manager position. What was so hard about that? You were homeless in Detroit. No, I I could assume it would be difficult. Uh, I have three computer monitors. (laughs) I I walked in and I'm like, we should like setting a space shuttle up. What's going on here? <laughs> it's just like, I had no clue what I was getting into. It was like literally, I never would have applied for the job if I had seen anything about it. Never, wow. ever would have applied for the job. But God knew that. And he knew that there was no way I would have had enough confidence in myself to even think that I could do the job. That's awesome. It was so funny. I just, I remember sitting there going, I'm never coming back here again (laughs) because there's no way I can do this. 
And I, Tom and Tracy, um, who own Wireworks, absolutely are two of my biggest cheerleaders. Um, since I've worked at Wireworks, um, my whole life has changed. Um, we're just a very small electrical contracting company. And I am able to touch lives in my job and help people. For me, um, when a woman calls me and she's like, an outlet in my house won't work. I don't know what to do. I can't afford you. And I'm able to walk her through it without charging her. That's the best thing in the world to me. It's so amazing that I get to do. And men too. Like I'm not even going to shade <laughs> the women. Men call too and they're like, I don't know why this won't work. And I can talk you through how to reset a breaker, how to look for a trip GFI. Is part of your house not have power because you dropped a leg outside and the power company has to pay for that, not you. You know, and Tom's like, keep doing that. You know, he's willing to give away that office call or that service call because that's his heart. Like, these people are real people. They're honest people. <clears throat> Not to mention, I mean, that makes people want to come back. Right. Knowing that, oh, you were willing to help me with something so small for free. And so now I want to support that business yes. when, when I do need something fixed. Big, yeah. Yeah. The coolest... um. The coolest story I have from working at Wireworks, well, I don't know. There's so many. <laughs> and if you call this podcast, I call Wireworks at 517-333-9473 and mention in the month of February that you saw this podcast, you get 10% off up to $50. Awesome. I'll put, so, that'll, that'll be in the show notes too. Cool. So. Yeah. So, but um. I had a girl call me. I usually take my phone, my cell phone home on the weekends. And if there's an emergency, it goes right to my phone. And this girl called me and she was all bent out of shape. Like, like, you know, some people feel like when something's happening to them, it's an emergency for everybody. And she had children and part of the power was out and she was panicked. And not kind. And so I'm like, okay, let me, let, let's try this, this, and this. No, it didn't work. Okay. I'm like, you need to call your power company. She's like, this is an emergency. And I said, well, let me help you with your expectations a little. Because it's not an emergency. It's summer. It's not 900 degrees. And it's not below zero. It's not an emergency. Just, I don't want you to think that I'm downplaying it, but I don't want your expectations when you call them to be mishandled. <laughs> and so, um, it turned out there was a brownout in East Lansing and that's why she didn't have power in all of her house. Two weeks later, three weeks later, she called me back and she was like, do you remember me? I was kind of not nice to you on the phone. I said, yeah, I remember who you are. I said, what can I help you with? And she's like, I just wanted you to know that I'm sorry. She's like, my dad had just died of an overdose in his car. Wow. And I don't, and she went on and on. And she's like, I don't know why you didn't love me enough to come live with me. 
I don't know why he wouldn't let us help him. He just didn't like us and he didn't, you know, love us enough. And, and she went on and on. And I knew that it was going to be a little unprofessional, but I knew that it was my responsibility at that moment. And I said, can I just tell you something? I said, your dad loved you so much and he respected you and your husband so much that he didn't bring the one thing that he could not control into your home. He was protecting you from him. He loved you that much. And she just started crying. And she, she was like, I don't know how I can thank you. And I'm like, you don't need to thank me. Just know that your dad loved you. And he respected you enough that he didn't bring that one thing he couldn't control to your life in front of your kids. And that was one of my crowning jewels in, in my job. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, to be able to help people like that has got to be so rewarding. And especially, too, because you have the skills and the knowledge. So, do, I mean, you gotta, you got to feel like you've accomplished something. I do. I do. I'm working on a book about it called Homeless to Hear. Uh-huh. And I'm working with a group called Recovered on Purpose, Adam Vibe Gunton. Um, if you go to Recovered on Purpose on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or anywhere else, um, Adam is phenomenal. He took his experience as an addict. He literally has the picture, a video that the police took when they saved him from overdosing. Oof. And he had to watch that when he was in court. And he's taken that and he's just vaulted off of it and just grown this beautiful program called Recovered on Purpose. And um, he's helping me with my book. And is that a local program? No, he's actually from Colorado. Okay. And he lives in Colombia because it's oh wow more fiscally right there. It's mm. cheaper to live there. And, yeah, and it's a beautiful country. And it's a beautiful country. And he's <laughs> learning a second language. So yeah. Um, the other thing that's really cool that we got to do with folks with um, elect- uh, with WireWorks is we got to do the, the uh, EV station. We can't say the name of that EV station. Um, is it? It's not public yet? It is public, but I don't want you to get in trouble because you're not allowed to say that name in conjunction with Wireworks. Oh, really? Yeah. So we did the EV station at the the Meyer station. Okay. At the Meyer get, uh, parking lot. And it is the fastest charging station in the world. Wow. It's the first of its kind, and wow. it's in South Lansing. <laughs> <laughs> and you put together this deal. I did. So we got, um, I have a lot of customer service background from when I was younger. And this guy called, and he's like, um, we just want to use your electrical contractor's license. Because in Michigan, you can't work with the license. You can't get a, a permit or anything if you don't have your license in Michigan. It's one of the few states that require. Oh, okay. So that's all they called us for in the beginning. And so I was just like, I don't know if my boss is going to go for that, but let's talk about it a little bit. And then they needed a directional boring company. And so I was able to find them a number from that for my boss. 
And then the more that I talked to him and like kind of helped him navigate because he's not from Michigan, like I was just being nice. And it turned out that now we have the first dibs on any of the new EV stations in Michigan. Wow. If we want them. Wow. Yeah. So it's really super cool. That is amazing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of that fact, but not as proud as I am that I could help that girl. You know, it's a different kind of thing, but Tom and Tracy Mullaney are absolutely a godsend and working for them. Like, you know, um, as a a woman um, and a single mom, things are harder for us. You know, there's a reason that, and this is my opinion, okay? There's a reason that we were designed to be together, male and female. There, there, we have different body types and mindsets and thought processes for a reason. They're compatible. And so as a single mom and a single dad, your your other half is missing. And so dealing with things like electrical work in your new house, your is overwhelming. When I started this job, I knew how to turn a light switch on. <laughs> I knew that there were buttons in the middle of my outlet to push. Maybe that helps. Yeah. And I could tell you where a breaker panel might be. And now I can walk you through resetting it. I'm actually an electrical apprentice. And we're going to do some um, some reels uh, for Facebook on showing people how to do these little things that empowers you to feel better about yourself and more confident and to learn because they're not hard. They're scary. Yeah. And so it's, I'm excited. We're going to kind of make them kind of funny and we're going to spoof on the guys a little bit. Cause I have all guys on my crew. I tell people I heard toddlers for a living because <laughs> there's eight of them. Eight. One, two, yeah. Eight of them. And only two of them are over like 35. So they're all young guys. And so it's like, I'm always telling them where they need to go, what time they need to be there, what job they're doing and this and that and the other thing. So it's controlled chaos, but it's really fun. I have the best guys out there. Just uh, absolutely. That's awesome. I, I think the one of the biggest takes from for me from this is that it's never too late to, no. to start and change your life and to, I mean, if you find something you enjoy doing, whether it's electrical and you're 50 some years old do it yes why not absolutely why not absolutely it could literally change the trajectory of your life and and it has yeah yeah it's not too late um and the other thing that i really want to come from this that is always my goal is that you don't have to suffer in silence i don't care if you're the president of the world I don't care if you're the pastor of the church or the pastor's wife. I don't care who you are. You don't have to suffer in silence. It's okay to ask for help. I suffered in silence a long time working in the church because I didn't want people to know or think bad of us. And I was willing to die for that. And it's not worth it. God does not intend for you to have to die in silence because you have a problem. It is not necessary any longer. Ask for help. Reach out. Reach out. I love it. I have a um, a group called Stepping Out. Um, it's is that on Facebook. 
it, it is. It's not. It's set up, but I'm not a tech person <laughs> at all. Okay, I'm, I'm. I can help you with your electrical now, but Facebook is not my thing. What was the name of the group? Stepping out. Stepping out. And if you go to Laura at Stepping Out. US, you can send me an email if you need help. Um, I know people. Hope Not Handcuffs is a phenomenal program with Families Against Narcotics. There are options out there for people to get help now. And it's so much more than being dragged to the homeless shelter or to a nasty, dirty rehab because that's all you deserve. Because it's not. It's not. You're not a bad person. You're not a horrible person there's help and it's accessible and it's okay to ask for help. For me, I needed somebody to tell me that it's okay to ask for help before I was willing to ask for help and it's okay. Laura, thank you for sharing your story. No problem. This was amazing. I'm sure it was difficult and uh, super inspiring. Super inspiring. And I'm glad that you're still here with us. And I'm glad that you have a great life. I do. Good job. Beautiful kids. Um, and I hope all this, I, I wish all the success on you. So. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And it, like I said, if you, anybody has questions, if you want to talk again, if Yeah, we can anything, do this anytime. Yeah, just let me know. There, there's so much that I didn't share that are... Well, even if you just want to come in here, we just chat. You're a funny person. You'd be a fun person just to sit down and just talk to. Yeah. Like not even necessarily have a, a subject, but just to talk to. Um, th some of Those are some of the best podcasts too, when you're just talking. Yeah. About nothing in particular. Yeah. So. Anytime. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. All right.